Hello and welcome to bonus episode 8 of the storyteller Murder Most Foul. I'm Isla Traquere. And as you may have heard, if you hung on to the very end of the last episode, this is not the end. There's more to come. There's another main episode coming and I'm very excited to share it with you. It's actually something hugely positive in a very dark story. A warning before I begin... I am going to go over some of the distressing parts of this story, which some people may find upsetting. I find it upsetting, and I take no pleasure in telling parts of the story, but it is necessary to explain that this wasn't a crime with any form of provocation or spontaneous argument. It was completely unprovoked and apparently motiveless. It's why I chose the title for the story to be Murder Most Foul. Apart from the slightly poetic Shakespeare connection, it perfectly describes what happened. And as you've gathered by now, the fact that all these professionals who've been involved in many, many murder cases over their careers all say this one stands out. It stayed with them. It still puzzles them, proves my point. Even Pamela Gurley's defence agent and QC chose to talk to me, and I commend them for doing so. Obviously, they do not represent her anymore and are free to discuss their thoughts on the case of a convicted killer. I also had a chat recently with Shane Campbell's colleague who attended the scene with police officers and he described it as a bloodbath, like a scene out of a horror movie, and he's not wrong. I'm glad this is audio and not visual. I've seen all the photos and they are burned in my memory. I couldn't help but ask Mr Campbell more about how he felt representing the woman who caused that scene. when you have a a client that let's be honest there's just so much evidence stacked up against them and literally it was almost gift wrapped in a black bag how do you react to that as a defense agent when you when you you know you get all this evidence which is not in your client's favor well um you've got to try and be as i suppose dispassionate as you can be um, ultimately, you are there as an agent of your client. Your client is the principal, if you like, and whatever you do is based on the instructions that you are given by your client. Now, even in cases where there is a welter of incriminating evidence against an accused individual, if he or she maintains to me or any defence agent that they are innocent of the crime and they may have a particular line of defence that they wish to pursue, then all I can do or any defence agent can do is to advise them with regard to what the evidence against them is and what may be the outcome in the light of that evidential material. But ultimately, the decision will rest with the accused as to what their instructions are. And if they say to me, I didn't do this, Uh, you know, I want to go to trial uh, and prove my innocence, then uh, effectively we're duty-bound to do that. And a lot of the time, the public, uh, I think, have the perception that we should be effectively telling an accused, look, here's the evidence, why on earth are you taking this to trial? Don't be silly, you should be pleading guilty etc etc but it doesn't work that way Uh, and although a member of the public can sit in court 
and watch a trial proceed and listen to the evidence that comes out from the prosecution witnesses and wonder why on earth is this individual going to trial and more so why on earth is this defence agent standing up there and defending him or her. Um, it's by and large because we have been instructed to do that and those are our instructions. Now we are only human and we too will in almost every case form a view about what the likely outcome is going to be uh, and so I may well say to an, you know, an accused, well, I have to say with this amount of evidence against you, it's quite likely that you're going to be convicted. But if you wish me to take this to trial on your behalf, then I'm more than happy to do that. Um, and that's the way um, the system works effectively. And was that the case uh, with Pamela when she did come to you with... Uh an alternative story. Yeah, um, and, and bearing in mind, you know, what I said earlier, had she at any time indicated to me quite clearly that she had committed this crime uh, and she was guilty of it, then the only way that I could have remained uh, on the case and acting on her behalf would have been ultimately if the case proceeded by way of a guilty plea in court had she given that information to me and then called me to say, look, um, I've changed my mind, I want to plead not guilty and I want to blame my boyfriend, Chris Taylor, I would have had to step away at that stage. I think my view throughout was that in all likelihood it was going to result in a guilty verdict. Um, I think the you know the the evidence with regard to the timing which had come from the downstairs neighbor the issue about the clock and the the fact that there were certain elements which, as you pointed out in the evidence of peter coming that didn't quite tally um my gut feeling was that um you know in all likelihood it was probably going to be a, a guilty a guilty verdict And he was right, she was found guilty, but by a majority verdict. There were 10 women and five men on the jury, but you don't get informed of the breakdown of numbers. As you heard, the atmosphere was tense to say the least. I remember holding my breath. I don't even know if I was looking because as a journalist who has to record every word verbatim in shorthand, you're poised over your notebook your best pen in hand, waiting for that moment when the jury foreman is asked to deliver the verdict. I remember it so well. The energy in the room, the relief, the release, as people shouted, yes! Some even stood up, they were so overcome. Because until that moment, you really have no idea what the jury will come back with. Now, my professional and personal opinion was that there was no doubt that she was guilty. From the forensics, the witnesses, the CCTV, and Pamela Gurley changing her story and her reasons behind that, I believe she did kill Melanie Sturton shortly after 8.30 in the morning of Saturday the 9th of October 1999. Melanie would have been asleep or just waking. I'm sure the last thing she would have wanted to do was answer the door in her pyjamas, being so shy she probably wrapped her duvet round herself as she answered it. 
Now, Pamela must have identified herself for Melanie to actually answer it in the first place and have a good reason for her to do so. Or, as Pamela claimed in one of her versions, there were keys in the door. So maybe she burst in on her. But either way, Melanie would have been utterly shocked to be confronted with her neighbour dressed in black with surgical gloves on and a sabatier boning knife in her hand. We know the sofa had many, many stab marks, some without blood and some with. We know that Melanie managed to stand up and was bleeding, most likely from the stab wound. She was trying to escape. She was most likely crawling. There were blood smears on the wall and the door. She was at the door. Escape was in sight. And she could have survived the stab which damaged her spleen if she'd got to hospital. But that's not what happened. Pamela Gurley took the knife and drew it across Melanie's throat at least four times. The deepest cut, pathologist Dr James Grieve, said had been gone over at least twice. Pamela was behind her while she was doing it. One of the strikes slashed her shoulder in the collarbone area. There were two smaller slices beneath the deep fatal cuts. She'd have been killed instantly by the throat injury, but only after a terrifying fight for her life. No time for her brain to consider why she was being attacked, just a desire to survive. Pamela, in her confession, said Melanie screamed and was asking her to stop. The student couple neighbours downstairs heard the screams for help at 8.40am. I learned at the time they felt terrible for not calling the police, but the truth is, it's unlikely Melanie would have been saved in time. Well, former journalist Alison Shaw believes the young chef was prepared to kill when she went downstairs that morning. I mean, it, it, it was an opportunist. It was an opportunist crime, but she clearly thought out when she got back, hadn't got any money, her boyfriend was away, to get dressed, change her clothes, put on the, the gloves and take a boning knife with her. She clearly, mm-hmm. we would probably have said, had murder in mind. Did you think the defence had much of a case? No, n- not at all. Um, and they've obviously, they've got to try their best for their, for their client, but nothing seemed credible um, against this overwhelming weight of evidence. It, it wasn't believable at all. It, it all hinged on the timing because she claimed that it happened when they came home very late at night when mm-hmm. they got the taxi home. But he was, they were both seen on CCTV, him going for the bus, and he would have been covered in blood if he had been. Yes, it was inconceivable. Mm. So I'm sure many of you from out with the UK are surprised with the 14-year sentence. Her age had a part to play, and that was the maximum the judge could impose at that time. In fact, during the appeals, the recommendation of 14 years was quashed and deemed to be excessive. But it was later restored due to a change in the law which required a release date to be fixed, and it went back to the original trial judge, Lord Marnock. It's perhaps even more surprising that her sentence wasn't longer considering she was caught and admitted dealing in heroin while in jail. She'd hidden the drugs with a prison value of £4,000 inside a glove which she'd tried to throw on the ground when she was searched after a tip-off of a drug deal during a church service. She pleaded guilty, was sentenced to four years, but it was concurrent to her existing sentence. Now, the many court appearances over the years for this crime and the appeals meant the torture continued for Melanie's family. Her stepfather, Paul Patrick, told me about the effect it's had and how they ended up having restrictions placed on them 
following Pamela Gurley's release in 2013. You would think that would be it over, but you then had appeal. Appeal after appeal after appeal after appeal. And what was it like for Susan? It was hard, Susan, because uh, obviously Kevin was away again and he was back. And then Darren, because believe it or not, when we went to Spain, that was Darren. He was just in primary one. That was his very first holiday as a kid. Well, as a school kid. And he never got one after that. Because every time he's gone, there's an appeal. Shit. And then it was cancelled. And then there was an appeal. And then it was cancelled. And then we're going down. And then she appealed again. And I thought, how many bloody appeals is this lassie going to get? When were you told that uh, she was going to be released? They never got told. They never told us. Did they tell you after she was already out? Or when did you learn of it? It was in the paper. That's how you found out. And was that was that a mistake? Did the did they apologise? No, there was never an apology. They were, so they didn't. They didn't have to. No, they didn't. They didn't have to. So was there anyone that you could phone when you read it in the paper? Did you did you contact the police or Susan and say? Hold well, on. well, read it together and then you phoned them. There was no, never got an answer back. I know Susan wrote writing letters and things. Yeah. And uh, it was never, never an apology. And in fact, you you guys have been told to avoid certain mm -hmm. places. They tell you you can't go there. I said, well, why point to come and tell me? You know, if you didn't tell me not to go there, because we know we wouldn't know she was there. Mm. You know, and it was stupid. So you knew that she was in Stonehaven, Stonehaven for a while. or Gordon or Inverbervie and all these places where she was Saint Cyrus. I mean, if I remember right, I actually got one of the an address, St. Cyrus address, and I thought, oh, I'm not going, and I thought, I ain't going there, you know. That woman has destroyed my family. <laughs> it's like no one, like you know the story for Susan for the first man, right up to now, you know. That's destroyed Susan even more, you know, because we see it, and it does, like, that's made me sound stupid. It was only about three weeks ago. She actually started throwing some of my mail and stuff it. Really? I mean, it's... So she kept it all this time? For it all, for years. Included in Melanie's belongings, which have been stored in their garage in Ballater all these years, were items returned by police. Fingerprint dust used by forensics remained, and in some cases, blood. Paul retrieved one item, which was so crucial in evidence and is now just a morbid memento. I was bagged up, but we were getting it back. <laughs> and, uh, I thought, oh, Do man. they not have to hold on to them? For... No, it's back. it's back. And then the ironic one was the clock. The wee white two-inch clock. The exact time. And do you still have that? I've got it. She doesn't. Because okay. I went click with the battery. Uh -huh. And it, it was like time stood still. No, 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 I just left it. I have that clock. What time did it start? What time did it stop? Four, four, eight? four minutes to nine. That's when that clock stopped. That's when she died. Oh, that's when it got knocked over. It's just enough to take the battery, knock it off. I've still got that clock with the blood. And you got that a few years after. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
and there was a sort of sore tooth, and then it was left. It was left for years and years and years. But did they give you the clothes she'd been wearing that day and things like that? No, that no, was. no. Because I'm imagining there's key pieces of evidence uh, there. But we've got the rice. But everything else was all covered, like the earphones. It was all covered with the, the fingerprints. Right. It was all done. It was left as it was. It was a clock. I still have that wee four-inch clock. Former Detective Sergeant Peter Riley still remembers clearly the plethora of worthless belongings taken. He's not convinced robbery was the motive and believes the items stolen may have been trophies. He also believes the bank card was used to withdraw a small amount so that people would still believe Melanie was alive on the Saturday afternoon, giving Pamela an opportunity to create distance for when the body was found. With the potential for such calculating behaviour, it's hard not to explore the possibility of a deep psychological motive. Stating the obvious, neither myself, Peter Riley, former crime journalist Alison Shaw, or any participants in this podcast are able to diagnose Pamela Gurley. So at the time of the, the investigation and the search of um, Melanie's house, which, you know, as part of the forensic examination, it was recognised that there had been some items gone. And if I remember right, the Teletubby keyring was something that maybe... I can't remember if it was her brother or mum or somebody had given it to her, so it meant something to her, and it was missing. Um, but clearly we didn't know all that was missing at that time because nobody would know what was, should have or been in the flat, and it was only once um, Pamela's flat had been searched that all this property was identified. And, you know, even the trauma getting their family to identify that was 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 quite substantial, and I wasn't involved in that. But the, the property, it was most of it, I think, was meaningless, and even... You know, she took 10 quid out of the account. So you think, well, was it money? Because there's no real monetary gain. I mean, 30 quid vouchers for Marquis, 10 pounds from the ATM. She could have taken a whole lot more money out of the account if she'd wanted to. I don't remember now how much Melanie had in her account. But that would suggest to me that, or to anyone looking at it, that was theft really the motive? Or alternatively, was it something deeper within Pamela's makeup that caused her to commit the murder. And, you know, without Pamela's explanation, I don't suppose we'll ever know that. Did you have any impression that she could be a psychopath? Have you come across... I'm imagining when you've met a few murderers, you might have met some psychopaths, but... And I'm not suggesting, obviously, you're not a psychologist, a psychiatrist to diagnose someone, but was there psychopathic behaviour demonstrated, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question, and it's to 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 be frank, it's it's um, it's a tough question to answer because she was presented very very um, controlled, and apart from the motion during the interview, um, that it was hard to to it was hard to sort of place what her state of mind was. Um, if you take a step back, you think you've got a young lady who. To all intents and purposes, certainly my first interaction with her was she was a young, young girl working, trying to make a living, living a re- good life, a reasonable life, a very plausible, pleasant. Um, and what then makes somebody go and do what she's done? Um, why she's done it? And, and also then, you know, subsequently making no, no remorse or showing no remorse, no empathy for the family. Um, and even the, the sort of callousness and coldness around about getting her, going back to the Marks and Spencer's vouchers, buying her grandmother a present with vouchers that she's stolen from a dead person. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And I think 
um, many people, including I'm sure her defence team at the time, thought this isn't rational and it's not normal. And clearly they, they would have um, been looking at the psychological aspect of whether or not she was a psychopath. Most people think that, that they must be a complete psychopath to do something like that. Um, I had originally thought that she was maybe still high on drugs when she did it because she was clearly not functioning with any logic you know that a normal person could identify with but I think she has tried to blank it all out she the, the very act of covering up her victim in the the quilt and various other things I mean she'd done it she didn't want to see it right, again after that and I think this not showing any emotion is she's just tried to forget the phrase bury it completely and, and not want to think about it because what kind of a person would you be if you were capable of doing that? It's, there, it doesn't make it doesn't make sense to anybody. What do you think about me trying to find her? I think if you can find her and she can tell you why, that would be the greatest gift to our family. Because that's the reason everyone wants to know why. Because they think, has she actually? picked her out or could it have been anybody that was in that flat at that that time was it something personal she needs to give you an explanation she she owes that family an explanation and a huge apology for 20 years susan patrick has been trying to understand why her daughter was killed so far she's failed to come up with a definitive answer and may have to accept that the person who took her daughter's life may never give a reason why. And the, the, the police, the only... They, they said in, in court that during the interview there was never any motive given. No. And I think um, when she was asked why she did it, I think she put her head in her hands and said, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And she repeatedly said, I don't yeah. know. But to know that your daughter lost her life for the sake of a small amount of cash, a Marks and Spencer's voucher... Mm. Teletubby Kira. Teletubby Kira, you know, how does that make you feel? Just just unbelievable just I can't there's something weird that that's all she took I mean there was nothing else to take I mean to think that there was something else can there was nothing there and to leave us with no reason why she did it and all the way through all that court cases um, quite a few of them she never ever ever said and to think that she got out when you got that parole and you think you're good and you're going to... Why wouldn't you... Why wouldn't they say you've got to say something? Why would you let somebody out with something so horrific and they even think about the family? But it's all mm. with me every day. Mm. It's there. And reminders and just just sometimes you walk away. Mm. Sometimes you burst out crying. Sometimes it's months. Sometimes it's yeah. can. It's just... but. For the vic oh, we, it's nothing to do with you, it's just... You feel the restrictions have been placed oh, on you, that yeah, you're right warned to right, stay away. Uh, so right for the beginning. If I am able to see her and have a conversation with her, what would you want me to ask her? Just why, just the reason why she did that. But I couldn't, I don't even, I know... There's no explanation just, no, that would be no, satisfactory, no, of course. No, but I don't even really want to can. I did. I just. But would would oh. would some form of or demonstration of remorse 
give you some slight relief. Yeah, really. Too late. I can that sounds awful, but it's just too late. It's too... I just hate the idea of carrying on. Nothing's and going to no, cure it, really. Gonna, no, but, not ever. But it might... It might well, even a tiny bit make it better if, yeah. even after all this time, Tinchy's on, if she was able to say, I don't regret my me. actions, mm. I don't know what was going through my head, I'm sorry, mm. you know, um, mm. or... or I'd, uh, I'd like to really see what she said in that interview and that when she was up on the parole board. Mm. And I kind of mind what, but something comes to me, the word unfortunate was used. She used the word unfortunate. Uh, I don't how that came to me, but somebody must have said it was unfortunate. As though it was out of mm-hmm. someone's hands, because yeah. unfortunate un- tends I, to mean... That, I'm sure that came up and said uh, it was... What she'd said was it had been unfortunate. I contacted the Parole Board for Scotland and was told they don't comment on individual cases, but they said before a tribunal of the board can direct release a life sentence prisoner on life licence, it must be satisfied that it is no longer necessary for the protection of the public that the prisoner continue to be confined in prison. When released, the life prisoner remains on licence for the rest of their life and can be recalled to prison at any time if circumstances change and the risk they pose can no longer be safely managed in the community. Now, before her full release in October 2013, Pamela Gurley was already being allowed out on day release to work at a job. She now works full-time for Timpson, which has a commendable policy about employing ex-convicts, which myself and Susan and everyone else in the podcast does not have an issue with. But I did contact them about Pamela, and they have declined to comment. However, I found an interview with Chief Executive James Timpson, in which he describes his hiring process. He says that interviews take about 10 minutes, and it's important how they tell me about their offence, he says. I like the ones where there's a pause, where they know what they've done is wrong. We probably select one out of ten. He said he avoids anything to do with gangs, but we have a few murderers. Those guys I specifically vet. The only ones we employ are someone who murdered their next-door neighbour because he was abusing his daughter, and a couple of ladies who murdered their partners due to physical violence against them. So you see there, those murders have mitigating or aggravating circumstances. I did ask the company specifically if they could tell me if Pamela Gurley had demonstrated any remorse, because that would literally be the only demonstration that we are aware of in the past 20 years. And even coming second hand could be a comfort to her family. But as I say, they have declined to comment. Tell me about um, after she was released and then I think it was uh, was it a year and a half ago um, near Christmas time yeah. you, there was a photograph of her living her life normally yeah. out with her colleagues the having penguin. a Christmas, <laughs> Christmas party jacket on and night out with the girls it's just like a knife going through you you get right at the beginning there was this oh you kind of hear this like gripping your stomach and you can't breathe and you just can't breathe and every time I see her or think about her I get that it's just there and it never ever moves and when I've seen that oh, I mean you do kind of nosiness want to see and then here she was and just and I thought really? she, look, she looks very she's, young still because right? like the photograph she's smiling yeah she's wearing a penguin, a penguin sort of festive yeah. t-shirt or jumper 
and um, I think there was a it was on so, someone's social media, and yeah. it was like a you know night out. What's it like seeing that, knowing that Melanie Just, isn't no, going to have no, that? We never, we've got something missing at birthdays. We've got something missing at Christmas, and they just carry on. And first, when she answered the door to begin with, it was just nothing. She answered the door to policemen just like half an hour after it. She was dressed, and I now somebody to do that so calm and so and horrific what she'd done, and answer that. And then go and then spend the money, the voucher and event to go on. But you really need to be something really, really deep in you to be able mm-hmm. to do that. And even now, even after all this time, whatever time she's done, you'll never, ever, ever convince me. Maybe she has changed, I don't know. But deep down, deep down, she must have, she suppressed that really, really. And I never convinced me somebody that vicious can it can be it's just either as as a condition she's got she can just do that because there's it was so violent and so and to face a policeman at the door half an hour later looking for somebody else and be totally how could you do that <laughs> just go oh my god no if you look at it from a psychological point of view there are some people who could profile her as being a psychopath do yeah, you think that would be well, I mean something deep 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 in that to just get and then keep on going but never ever say sorry mm. or, or admit it but and every time it was back and back and looking the same look the same face mm. and I bet it was the same in the paper she's only got a fatter face now to just go back to that issue of the psychology it's worth noting that Pamela was a real animal lover growing up she had pets and Hammy the hamster, and she used to name the pigs at the pig farm. And also, as Claire mentioned, she was very loving to her baby daughter. So these are not typical characteristics of a psychopath. But what is hard to understand is why she doesn't have it in her, or hasn't had it in her so far, to offer an explanation or even an apology to the family whose lives she has destroyed. My whole goal and drive of this podcast has been to try and give Susan and her family some closure, and I thought that was by getting an answer from Pamela. We're still waiting, and it's not to say she's not going to talk to us, but I am going to give you a clue. The next episode that's coming up, a resolution, a conclusion that I hadn't anticipated, presents itself from a most unexpected person who's come back from the grave. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of The Storyteller, Murder Most Foul. I'm the writer, producer and editor, Isla Traquair. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please go on to iTunes and rate and review. It makes a big difference and I really appreciate it. And of course, there's lots more information on the social media on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.